Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 295. Ooh, what a whirlwind it was this past week as uh, Yutzfat came and we celebrated and honored 70 years of the Rebbe's leadership, vision, and revolution in three powerful and special programs. Last week's My Life Chassidus Applied was totally dedicated to this theme. And uh, I have to thank you for the tremendous response and reactions and feedback. Then on Tuesday night, a special program with my brother, which will be put up online in the near future. And finally, last Wednesday night, the third of these three special programs, what we're calling Project 70, I have come into my garden which is just the beginning of other programs, special events that we're going to be doing in this 70th year that began Yutzvah Tovshin Pei, 70 years from, Tov, from Yutzvah Tovshin Yud. So Wednesday night I did, I, uh, I did, the theme was a vision for the 21st century, become a, how to become a leader, become a leader using the th- six letters of leader, the acronym of six revolutionary principles that can transform your life and the world. So check it all out. It's all available. Go Just go to chsidisapplied.com slash project70 and you'll see that the landing page. That's where all future events will be posted. And meanwhile, we have these two and soon will be three programs. And again, this is all driven by the concept of bringing everything into action. The mission of the seventh generation the mission is to bring it down into concretizing, the, the, realizing the vision, the mission for which we were sent here, which is to bring the Shekhinah, the divine presence in everything we do, in everything, period. And uh, finally reveal the Gu'ula Amitiz Vashlemi. I say reveal because it's putting the Aleph into existence. The Aleph means the Aleph of godliness, of unity, of Ahdus into existence. And that turns into the goal after the cumulative thousands of years of work that we have done. So we will continue a follow-up to Yuchfat during this program. The amount of comments, I really can't cover them all, to be honest. But I selected a few that I will address. But we also are on course every week. We begin with something connected to the time and to the period in which we are in. But let me begin with dedicating. The dedication of this program is in the merit of anyone looking for a shidduch. So may, this te- may these teachings, may this program, and all that are inspired by it, and all that share it with others, serve all those looking for a shidduch well, to make it easy for them, the least amount of aggravation to find their soulmate, and, and continue their next leg of their most important leg of a journey of building a home, a bias them, be Israel, with healthy children, that will uh, conquer and and uh, and uh, tra- and uh, disseminate Torah throughout the world, conquer in the spiritual sense of the word. Part of also bringing the Geula, Mola Hashem Kamayim a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. So, I also want to be, to announce or continue announcing this. We are in the middle of the sixth annual My Life contest. It's both an essay contest this year, as it's been in the last five years, as well as an artistic contest to use different creative platforms and and, uh, and, uh, tools 
to express an idea in Chassidus and apply it to life. All the information can be found at chassidusapply.com slash contest. People ask the question, can you submit to both contests because they're two different, two different prizes? The answer is you can submit one to each. One, only one submission is allowed. You could submit one as an essay, one thing, an essay, and you can also submit creative, a creative, a creative track. You can only win one prize, but you could submit one for each. So that answers that question. I also am excited to share, and I mentioned it, but now there's an actual full site. This year, we've created its own family, its own track, the Hebrew. All Hebrew essays go to a new site called diraloy.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org. And there, it's exclusively Hebrew. So wherever you are in the world, you're writing a Hebrew essay that will have its own prizes, and it's a different, the, the rules for the contest are the same, but it's different demographics, as you can see there, the details. All this is testimony to the great success of the essay contest of people using their resources, using your ingenuity and your creativity in expressing ideas of chassidus, owning it. There's nothing more powerful than that. The Rebbe teaches us to be a flame that rises on its own, where you own it. And the Rebbe's ideas, and the Rebbe's thinking, and Rebbe's methodology, and Rebbe's vision becomes your vision. The deadline for this will be the end of February, as all outlined in those on the sites, chassidusapply.com slash contest, and diralei, D-I-R-A-L-O.org, for the Hebrew contest, in, uh, for all the Hebrew the rules as well. Follow the rules and guidelines. Make sure you show your essay to someone or other creative presentation. It's always good to check with someone who can only make your product and your submission and entry even better. Okay. And hopefully when each of us adds our own unique voice in expressing these ideas, what better way of, of celebrating Yud Shvat, as the Rebbe wrote in the letter Chiyut Ches Tevis, Tov Shin Tezvov, that he suggests to honor of Yud Shvat to write an essay. So we discovered that a little few weeks after we launched the contest six years ago. That 60 days to the day when we, launched the con- when we came up with the idea, conceived of the contest, 60, days, 60 years to the day when the Rebbe wrote that letter. You could check that out in Igris Kedish, volume uh, 10. I believe it's page 238. So with that, let us go, because tomorrow, with this week is, of course, Tu B'Shvat, Tonight, tomorrow's Tu B'Shvat, the 15th day of Shvat, mid, right, mid point of the middle of the month, the full moon of this month. And this week is also Parshas Yisrei, the Parsha Matan Teda, where we read about the, about the revelation at Sinai following the Jews leaving Egypt and then the parting of the sea in the last week's chapters. We come now to Parshas Yisrei. So in our usual custom, we'll share a few words about that. So this applied to these themes. And actually a question came in about about um, Tu B'Shvat. What does it mean that Tu B'Shvat is a new year for trees? We know Rosh Hashanah Le'ilon or Le'ilonis. What does it mean? Do trees do things wrong that they need to ask forgiveness for? The writer is assuming that it's like Rosh Hashanah for human beings, that we then do tshuva and we begin a new year. So he asks if the trees do anything wrong, they need to ask forgiveness for. If it says man is like a tree, Ki Odom, ki odom Eitz Asada, then why don't people and trees share the same day as Rosh Hashanah? If man is like a tree, the question is, another question is, why then don't they, uh, they compare it to man? So they should also celebrate Rosh Hashanah when the humans do 
at the creation of the human being, which is at Rosh Hashanah, the sixth day of creation, Rosh Hashanah and Tishrei, Aleph Tishrei. Okay, good questions, and it's a good launch point to talk about Tu Bishvat. So yes, the Mishnah says, there are four types of Rosh Hashanah. There are four Rosh Hashanah. One of them is the one, of course, we the most famous one, which is Rosh Hashanah and Tishrei, as I just mentioned. That's when we blow shofar. That's the Day of Judgment, Yem Adin, the New Year. Then there's other Rosh Hashanah, Melochim, and so on. Let's talk about Rosh Hashanah Lilan. And also mention Rosh Hashanah Lilanus. There are two opinions, Shammai and Hillel. One says, Shammai says, Rosh Hashanah Lilan is Rosh Chodeshvat, because that's the beginning, the very beginning of spring um, in Israel, of course. And Beis Hillel says, Hillel says, Tezvav Shvat, because that's when it becomes more actualized. The Rebbe explains, and different Sfarim explains, the difference between them is Koyach and Poyel. Shammai goes Bekeach, so there's already a beginning of the potential of the sprouting 15 days earlier. And Hillel goes on the actual. The actual so-called blossoming begins in the 15th of Shvat. Not for here, but that's the, the, the disagreement that they have. Halach is like Hillel, so we honor to Bishvat. But of course the big question is, why do we have to honor it? Good, fine, you can say this is the beginning of their season, just like Rosh Hashanah is when we were created, the human being. And the human race was created, Adam was created, and the sixth day of creation. Chofei El Nivra Elam, the 25th of El, we go according to that count, according to Rabbi Lozer, is uh, 25th of El, and therefore six days later is the creation of Mass. So every year, the cycle repeats itself with an Anuk axis, so that we celebrate the birthday of the human race, the crown jewel of creation. So Rosh Hashanah Lil is the same idea for the cycle of trees, that they also have their seasons. Where does their season begin every year? On the 15th of Shvat. Question is, why is it relevant to us? Affects our tachnun, affects prayer, affects different things. There's the customs of uh, eating the seven minim, the seven species that, with which Israel is praised. Svardim have a seder even on Tub Shvat. There's different customs. Why is it relevant to us? So the general answer given is, one of the answers is, because human beings are responsible for the entire creation. So if it was just independent tracks, it's one thing. The birthday or the new year of the trees also affects us because we're here to preserve, to fill the world and sublimate it toward the divine. That's why Rosh Hashanah Taki is counted on the sixth day of creation. Why is Rosh Hashanah not the creation of the world? which would be similar to Tubish Shvat, when the trees begin to blossom, begin to grow in their new season. Because the purpose of creation is the human being, not just that the world is created, that the human being elevated all. That Adam and Eve called all of creation and said, let us all now serve. So the existence, the entire universe, is like a platform that God created. Everything God created is for His honor. Who reveals that honor? That's the human being. Now when we take the world, whatever, whatever, every aspect of it, whether it's demim, tzemeya, chayim, the mineral, the vegetable, the animal, the human, and we elevate it and direct it towards kvayde, towards revealing the divine, that's fulfilling its purpose. And we do that by following the blueprint, which is the Torah and mitzvahs. 
The, the part of the world is the world of trees, the world of vegetation. So though it was created on day three, but it comes to its culmination and its fruition on day six. So therefore, the human being, when the trees begin their new season, we honor and celebrate that as well. But it's obvious why, because nothing happened on day six in the season. The seasons don't begin till Tu Bishvat. So for to make, even though the human being is connected to the tree, and let me take this a step further before I continue. Now this is in general, the human being, it says, the entire universe exists within us. In microcosm, that's the entire world, including, of course, trees. But then there's the verse, that even though the literal interpretation of the verse been pointed out can mean a different thing, but it's used as it's talking about not destroying trees, fruit trees. And uh, in the reading, the simple reading of the verse, which is really an aside, I just mentioned it, it said, is, a human, is the tree like a human being? But in another interpretation, which is brought by the Rebbe and others, based on a medrash, that a human being is compared to a tree. So indeed, this new season of trees teaches us lessons. So we learn from those trees. But it wouldn't make any sense that the new year of trees should be celebrated on Rosh Hashanah because that's a celebration of the human being, the crown jewel. Then there's a new season of trees when this new season begins. We also honor it, meaning humans. Not, not just a new year for the trees that they are so-called celebrating in their own way. Remember, the trees of the forest also sing praise. We say Friday night prayers in other places. And but it's also the humans because the trees are connected to us in general and specifically we're compared to a tree. There have been very beautiful letters and, and talks that he's delivered explains how the tree, the trunk, the branches, the leaves, the fruit, the roots are all expressed in human being. We all need roots. We need a strong tree trunk. We need to branch out and bear fruit. The Rebbe also explains the seven different species that are eaten on Tu Bishvat, how they are in Aveda Sada, meaning how we all encompass each one of them in our own personal service. So that's why we honor it. Now regarding the question about does it sin, so first of all, you find Nosu Hachoyim, Dachal you find Rashi says that yes, when the world is not complete, it could also affect the vegetation world. But that's not really the key answer. The key answer doesn't matter. Rosh Hashanah doesn't always mean because you transgressed that's why you need to do tshuva. That's the Rosh Hashanah of a human being that has free will. Trees don't have free will, even though I just mentioned that subtly and it's discussed how can they have made a choice different than God wanted them to be. Because the world was not perfect, so there's an effect. When the world isn't perfect, it can affect also the world of Tzemeach. You see by the Mabel that not just humans were, <coughs> were killed, were cleansed, but also uh, the demon Tzemeach were also cleansed due to the mabel, because the toxins affected everything. But the main point that might make is that Rosh Hashanah means the beginning of a season. It's a new state of accounting. What is the role of the tree? The tree is now being rejuvenated, regenerated in a new season. It doesn't always have to mean that you did something wrong. So Rosh Hashanah does not imply doing wrong. Think of Rosh Hashanah for tzaddikim. It's because they did something wrong. No. Either way, you have to have an accountability. You finished accounting for the past year, and now we're starting preparing for the new year. So the same is with trees, and how it relates to us 
is that we can learn our lessons from trees in that personal fashion. As we've discussed in previous episodes, 54, 100, 149, 199, and 245. I always do cross-referencing at chassidahsupply.com. You can find all the previous archives. You can also find the forum where you can easily submit a completely anonymous question. You can also find the essays of previous years um, that were written, beautiful, powerful essays, thousands of essays written by people like yourselves in, uh, in the previous year contest. And of course, we're now in the middle of the sixth year contest, as I mentioned before. Okay. So bottom line lesson from Tu Bishvat is that we are like a tree, and like a tree grows in two directions at once, need deep roots, bear beautiful fruit. So trees carry like mirror and reflect who we are, and they can help us grow in the most appropriate and, pow- and powerful way. And there are, as I said, I cross-reference more details can be seen in the previous episodes and different sikhs of the Rebbe explaining details of Tu Bishvat as they relate to our personal lives. Okay. Now let's move over to Yisrael. So Yisrael has many themes. Of course, by Yishma Yisrael begins that Yisrael, Moshe Rabbeinu's father-in-law, heard what had happened. He heard about Kriyas Yamsuf and he came to see with his own eyes. Came to see with his own eyes and Atiyadaiti says, now I know, because he was, of course, a minister, a, a, a master of all the wisdoms and all the sorcery and all the spirituality at the time in the world. And he says, Atiyadaiti, now I know, Kiavaya, in God that your God, the God that's about to give you the Torah, is greater than all the other deities, all the other forces that people worship or, or respond to or celebrate. Chassidus brings from Zohar. Why did this have to be come before Matan Teda? Why did the Pasha begin with Matan Teda? So it says that through Yisrael, he added a chapter because Yisrael, because when Yisrael itself comes from the word Yisrael, like Yisrael, to add something, what did he increase since he came and saw the wisdoms of all the world? Yisrael min That by contrast, he recognized the great advantage of this air, of this Havayat, this God, the true God, and that is in a sense prepared because if the Torah is going to affect the world, the world itself has to be receptive to it. And Yisrael laid that ground by saying, I have studied all different wisdoms. I know what the world is thinking. Their philosophies, their theologies, their ideas and concepts. And now I acknowledge that this is the greatest of them all. So in a sense, someone of the world, a man of the world, a master a wise man of the world, a wizard of the world, acknowledged it, and that was the prepared, prepared the ground to really great, the great light that would come from Tater. So it wasn't just Tater coming from heaven. It was also the world being receptive to hearing something now, the mandate that God was going to give the, the Jewish people, and by, and by extension to the entire world. That's why you find in the Gemara that when the Vat and Tater happened, it said the whole world fell into a silence. Birds did not chirp. Tziftzef was silent. And everybody recognized something is happening. So they came running to Bilam, the nations of the world, and said, Bilam was their prophet. What's going on? He said, Hashem is Hashem Yivarech God is giving his strength, his power to the people. Hashem Yivarech, his blessing, his nation with peace. So this wasn't just a demonstration for them to know this. It permeated the entire world. 
Because the whole purpose of Teirah is night b'shamayim. It's not to remain in heaven. It's to come to this world and transform it. And here is the first place where it becomes official, formal. Till now, the Ovis, the patriarchs and the matriarchs and the generations before, they knew Teirah and they fulfilled it, like the Gemara says. They fulfilled the Tartar, but it was not with Suva They were not commanded, and they did not have the ability to permeate existence itself. That the Chefze, the very fiber of existence, should be saturated and permeated and transformed by this power of Tate. And Yisrael helped that along by acknowledging it. So it's not a battle any longer. He's acknowledging that the world recognizes, I, one who studied all the wisdoms recognize this unique strength. This does not minimize, as we've been talking a few weeks ago, the wisdom of secular studies, of science and so on, because that's also God's wisdom as it's invested in creation, the wisdom of science. It doesn't negate it. But here we're talking about not just the wisdom, what makes the world tick, but why the world ticks. What is its purpose? How do we use the universe to transform it and fulfill the purpose of the cosmic architect, God that created it, and he gives, he did that through the blueprint of creation, which is the tale of the blueprint through which the entire existence was created. And that's what happens in this week's chapter. Okay. So here's a question someone asks. Did Moshe Rabbeinu marry into a non-Jewish family? If Yisrael was not Jewish, does this mean Moshe Rabbeinu married into a non-Jewish family? Does it say anywhere that Sepera converted? His wife was Tzapera, daughter of Yisrael. So it's an interesting question you ask, but you have to bear in mind that there are Svarim that talk about this at length because it's not just about Moshe Rabbeinu. What about Avram Yisrael Yankov? Did they have the din of a Yisrael? Halachic din. Remember, until Matan Teda, there was no formalization of what a Jew is. Everybody was nations of the world. There were people who chose to follow God and they in, te- in turn would become the... Their descendants would become those that stood at Sinai, but we all know that the laws of conversion, you know where we derive them from? From Matan Teda, from the laws of, from what happened, events that happened at Sinai. Because the entire Jewish people, the entire people went through a conversion process in all senses of the word. They did everything, everything we do with an individual convert today, a ger, is what we learned from Matan Teda. That's why we eat milchik on Shavuos, one of the reasons, because the kalim had to now be kashered they had the din of not a non-Jew till that moment of Matan Teirah, when they were makabal mitzvahs, and they immersed themselves, and they circumcised themselves earlier, Korban Pesach. So the fact of the matter is, there was no laws in the technical sense. Now, it's hard to imagine, was Moshe non-Jewish? Would you say? No, he was the Jew in spirit. Whatever makes a Jew, but wasn't yet formalized, he, as his father, Amram, as his father Gross and all the way back to Levi, to Yaakov, Yitzchak, Avram, they embraced a path that in effect they chose to be what we would call Jewish. So sometimes you use the word Jew in a central word, but there's a whole sefer called Derech Mitzvah not from Tzamech Tzadik, a Nigla sefer, that discusses this, that discusses this at length, all the different back and forth, what law, what halacha did they have? Generally the consensus is that what non-Jews are today, Compared to Jews, that's where the, all the people before Matan Teda are compared to today, meaning after Matan Teda. So in that sense, Meshur Rabbeinu, now, you'll say, why didn't he marry somebody from so-called descendants of Avram Yitzhak Yaakov? Fine, that's a question. 
But that's not the same thing as just marrying a non-Jew because everybody was technically not Jewish. Now, some explanation can be back to what I said before about Yisrael. It's a Peter's daughter. Moshe went out to Midian because part of transforming the world is coming from there. So, Chaz Roshalom, God forbid to even say that anyone was ever an Yisrael. Anything forbidden or prohibited to marry from the nations of the world. It's true, Avram and Yitzchok insisted that their children marry from their, from their genes, from their uh, family line. But even that, it's not because it's a Jewish line. There was no Jewish line yet. A, the, uh, Rachel was a daughter of Lavan. <laughs> Rachel was a sister of Lavan. Was a daughter, uh, sorry, Rivka was a sister of Lavan. Rachel was a daughter of Lavan. And Leah was a daughter of Lavan. Rachel was a daughter of Psuel. These were not people who were exactly the most savory characters. Avram was a son of Terach. So you see, so there was more because the personality was similar, coming maybe from a more refined background, from that environment, Padana in, the, in a, 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 where they Padana Ram, where they came from originally. But that's not relevant to our discussion here. And generally speaking, I never did research on this, but the people who did they marry, they didn't necessarily marry their own families or within their families. It could have been people from different uh, nations that lived by them. Was there any controversy of Moshe with Pitzapari? Yes, there was. Later, there was Chmonolitzlan, Miriam, and talking against Moshe in that sense about Tzapari. There was talk because she was of the darker skin, which means not just they were discriminating about the skin, but they saw her as an outsider. But that's not relevant to our discussion. I just wanted to address the issue of Jew and non-Jew. Okay, now let's do some follow-up to Yutzvat. Can't do all of it. There was a lot, really a lot. And thank God, um, the program, especially last Sunday, was extremely, extremely well received, and I and thank God for that. So uh, let's just go in order of a bunch of questions and comments, and try to get through this. Okay, let's start. Of course, the mimer of Yutzvat is Bosilegani. Is the mimer that was published for Shabbos Parsha Boy Yutzvat Tovshin Yud, and people were studying it that Friday night on Shabbos. And that's the last mimer published by the Friedrich Rebbe. Published by the Rebbe was the publisher, but it's the last mimer of the Friedrich Rebbe that was published, B'chaim Chayusib al-Medein. And that became the mimer that the Rebbe, a year later in Tovshin Yud Aleph, began his leadership with that inaugural discourse. And following that, every year after that, he would say that mimer on Yudshvat, Bosiligani. And each year in the 20 chapters of this discourse, which breaks into four mimerim, each with five chapters, make a total of 20 chapters, the Rebbe would go each year, this year's chapter, it had been, been chapter 10. But because it's the 70th year, so a lot of koch, been a lot of talk and, and passion around the general first mimer because we're talking about 70 years of the Rebbe's leadership and that first mimer in 1951 when the Rebbe declared his mission, the mission of the seventh generation. Just a little background. So here's the first question someone asked regarding Basiligani. So Basiligani, as I discussed last Sunday at length, Basiligani captures the actual theme of creation itself, the purpose of creation itself, and that is what? I have come into my garden, that the goal is that God should return to his garden, as it was in the beginning of time. Not just home, garden, a place of delight, of pleasure. Completely a, a, word that is, a world that is saturated and expresses and channels divine pleasure. So in the beginning of creation, that's the way it was. The chatoyim, the sins, 
or like a state of dissonance and displacement where they moved away from the purpose so the machine became misaligned of its purpose. Seven generations that caused more disalignment, more disalignment. And each state, the Shekhinah, was removed more so, more so, from a, in a revealed, and more concealed, more concealed, until Avram reversed the process and began bringing it back down, so to speak, and infusing and integrated it into the world. And there are two seven generations corresponding to the first seven generations, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, until Moshe is the seventh generation from Avram, who brought the Jews to Sinai, this week's Parsha Matan Teda, and next Parshas, Truma, two Parshas from now, will build the Mishkan Vasili Migdash Vishachanti Besecha. And that's all a prelude to what will be in the future, all the thousands of years following that. So we had the Besa Migdash, we had the different Migdash, the first temple, the second temple, but then they were destroyed. Since then, almost 2,000 years ago, we've been rebuilding the Beis HaMikdash Beruchnis, Shechanti Beseicham, within us, within you, I will rest within you, and transforming the world, preparing it for the final Geula, which is Kiemet Seiz Kameretz Mitzrayim, similar to the, to the Exodus from Egypt, but this time, Mikdash Adnei Kainu Yodecha will be a permanent temple, the third temple, permanent, never be able to be indestructible. And the entire world will be a dira betachtenim. And more than that, a gan. Gani. Where I originally started. That's the theme of Bosalagani in a broad sense. And the Rebbe immediately connected. Of course, we are now the Deir Ashvi. Kol Ashvi and Chavivin as alluded, as stated openly in the beginning of the discourse. The seventh generation from the Alter Rebbe, like Moshe, the seventh generation from Avram. To do what? To finish the job. So imagine, it's quite fascinating. Who would have known? Did anyone know beforehand? And yet this becomes the, the discourse that is not just the last mimer that uh, published from the Friedrich Kareb, but it actually captures the entire theme of our time and the entire theme of creation itself. So the question someone asks is, if the Shekhinah was revealed at one point, then how is it possible for people to sin? According to the Basiligani Maimon, in the first generation, the Shekhinah was revealed in the world, but due to ra- various stages of human iniquity, the Shekhinah withdrew. The Divine Presence withdrew. My question is, if the Shekhinah was revealed, then how was it possible for people to sin if they were in a state where they openly saw revelation of godliness? And of course you're referring to Adam and Eve. Can one summarize the basis? Okay, let's stop there. The answer is obvious. It's not a question on the Mimer, it's a question on the whole concept. Because Adam and Chava were given free will. And they were given the choice. As the Rambam explains. And hey, the man will be like one of us. The Rambam explained the free will. And God sent the serpent and challenged them, do not eat from this tree. And they were tempted. So yes, the divine presence was there, but it was not them yet. They have to choose to own it. So the revelation was there. They were formed by God. They were divine. Quite high level. But there's always a need for you to own it and internalize it. That they did not do. Had they listened and not eaten from the tree, then it would have been theirs. So despite the fact that the Shekhinah is revealed, there's room. Just like Pechira, even though God runs the world and everything is divine providence, but he suspends himself, so to speak, for us to be able to make the choice. 
So of course you'll ask, one second, if divine revelation is everywhere, how could you even make a choice? Well, that's what he suspended. He must have left some, something for them to be able to say, maybe, maybe not. Like you see, when the Abraham created a human being, it says, Let us create the human being in our image, in our image, in our uh, visage, in our uh, like, like, likely, like, likeness. Come Moshe Rabbeinu, when he sees that, he asks the Hashem, people will then interpret, you say, Nasa, we shall? They will interpret that there's a duality. God forbid, a shituf, a, par- a partnership. We should say, I am going to create the human being. Nasa, as, esa. What's Nasa? Like you're, is more than one creator? God forbid. What's God's answer? Those that will make, want to make the mistake, let them make the mistake. So you see that built-in creation is a certain, uh, lack of a better word, agnosticism. And Chassidus explains it according to that Yizal's doctrine of Tzimtzum. Even then there was a Tzimtzum. There was a Tzimtzum, but there was revelation. Chassidus elaborates on the idea that the Tzimtzum changed the entire paradigm. Before the Tzimtzum, if you ask the question, before the Tzimtzum addition, then there's no room for anything. And therefore there's no room, not only there's no room for a choice to defy God, there's no room even for an existence that could defy. It's all complete divine consciousness. That was the entire existence. Or there was no existence, that was the entire reality. Comes the tzimtzum and conceals it. But then the kav, there is light, there is divine revelation, Adam and Eve, other Machav knew of it, but there's a tzimtzum now, meaning there's some independent consciousness. Now, had they chosen to align their independent consciousness with, the, with consciousness, with divine consciousness, then you have the gula. Then the gan remains a garden. Had they not, and which, they, which was what happened, they said, oh, you know, this is a tree. It's a das tevera. Let me taste it. They were tempted. And then what does God say? Ayeko, where are you? I don't recognize the divine image you were, in which you were created. So as much of revelation there was, it was still at Simtsum. And it did impact. And they made that mistake. And we've been reversing the process ever since because Chetet Sadas changed, changed reality on the surface level and even on deeper levels. Fundamentally, it still remains divine. Still remains a garden, as the Rebbe in a beautiful Fabring in Yudshvat Tov Shalamit Beis elaborates. It still remains Gani. But now the Gan has become overgrown with weeds to the point that man can no longer live there. You want to be in Gani, you have to be aligned. You cannot be here if you become toxic. So that's the answer to the question. When we finally transform existence and ourselves and existence, then there'll be the permanent revelation and then Taka will never be able to leave again and we will no longer have that we will be saturated, we'll be completely infused with divine will. But even based on Migdash, there was a Gilui, and still, Sinas Chinam destroyed the second temple. So you see, same idea. Because it has to be owned. We have to completely become one with it. Once you become one with it, then there's nowhere to go, because now everything has been transformed to be divine, conscious, divinely conscious. Okay, the next question. Can one summarize the Basilagani in a simple way to say the Friedrich Rebbe was clearly saying the seventh generation, our current generation under the Rebbe's leadership, would bring Mashiach. Was the Friedrich Rebbe telling us in his final public statement in the Maimer 
that our generation, the seventh generation, will bring Mashiach. Well, the answer is very straightforward. Had the Rebbe not explained it that way, I don't know if we would have figured it out. The Rebbe took, obviously clearly written in the Maimah, was not added. That Kol Hashvi and Chavivin, the seventh generation, is talking about Moshe. The Maimah does not talk about our generation. I mean, the general Avedi is talking about we have Avedi. But once it says Shvi, the Deir Shvi of Moshe, and the Rebbe, is the Deir Shvi from Alta Rebbe, it became very clear that's what it means. But I don't know if we can summarize it on our own from the Friedrich Rebbe's words itself, but now it's clearly the case, especially once you see the Rebbe's Maimor, and Maimor, I mean, the Rebbe's whole leadership took that and translated it. But it's not forced. That's the beauty. It is all there in the words. So that's the answer. So bottom line, the answer is yes. The Bosilagani is a public statement, especially when the Rebbe explains it in Tovshin Yudalif, public statement that we are the seventh generation to finish the job. But as I said, if you read it on its own without the Rebbe's interpretation, I don't know if you'd come to that conclusion. But clearly now it's very clear, and it's not, as I said, not forced. It's very smooth and very obvious once you understand the Hashgacha Pratis of that Mimer being the one uh, published then, Tavshin Yud, Yud and the Rebbe then, of course, taking it the next year and beginning to explain it and spells out the Derashvir of our time in very clear and no uncertain terms. So now we're on that topic. Someone writes, referring to the Friedrich Rebbe as Mashiach in previous generations and the Rebbe as Mashiach now. In regards to Yushvat, there are places where the Rebbe refers to the Friedrich Rebbe as the Mashiach of his generation. If that's the case, then it's justified to say the Rebbe is the Mashiach of our generation since he took over the leadership after the Friedrich Rebbe. Well, there's a deeper source. It's not just because the Rebbe said the Friedrich Rebbe is Mashiach because you could ask the question, how, where's the Rebbe's source for that? Not that the Rebbe needs a source. But there is a source. If you look in all the Sikhs, especially later in the Nun, Nunalov, he brings the Chassam Sefer, and he brings the Zdei Chemed, and he brings Medrashim, and he brings different sources. That the Nasi, in every generation, there's a person whose Roy is worthy of being Mashiach. In some place, the Nasi of the generation is that one. And when the time comes, the Ebrister puts into him the Mishama, and the awareness, and the directive, now go become Mashiach, just like Moshe Rabbeinu. Till age 80, he wasn't yet sent on his mission. So he was there. Moshe was a great man, growing, learning, developing. And then comes the day when Hashem calls him, summons him, and he sees the snet, and God says to him, I am sending you to be my shliach. Shlach no tishlach. My shliach, Gael Rishon, to redeem the Jewish people. Go to Pare, get them out of Egypt. So the same thing with Gael Achrin. There are criteria that Rambam says what defines a person who's cheskes Mashiach. And then what Mashiach vad is when God says, okay, this individual who's committed to, who's from the house of David HaMelech and is committed to Teir Mitzvah and Yaakov and he affects and influences and inspires others to do the same. Then he goes on by battling a war. Then when God blesses that, he's successful in the war. And then he rebuilds the Beis HaMidrim Kemi, the third temple, in its place and gathers the Jews from exiles, then you know he's Mashiach Vadai. But that's a process that doesn't just come from the bottom. It means that God shows this is the time. So that's really the source, those sources, that the Nasi of every generation is the one that's... And therefore the Nasi, that applies. If you want an additional point saying that, he said, the Rebbe said about the Friedrich Rebbe, therefore applies the Rebbe coming to the Rebbe? Yes, because he's the next Nasi. Okay.
Another question is regarding chapter 10. So in the Maimah Tov Chof, 1960, the Rebbe explained chapter 10 as well as in 1980. So here's the question that's asked. There's a discussion in Basel Ghani about the humility of Rab Zacharia. And he didn't say Ace Lasses when sacrificing the carbon from Bar Kamsa. So the story in Gemara, they went to the fool and send the carbon that's not kosher. The bottom line is that he didn't say slashes when sacrificing the carbon. So he's criticized, the Gemara says that this false humility was the cause of the churban, was the cause of the destruction. That he should have said, because they were trying to trap him. And he should have said, you know, for keeping the base Amigdash, I will forego this. But because of his false humility, it's the way it's put, Anova Shleibim came, Amvasa, because of his Aniva, Anova came the churban. The Rebbe says that everybody has such opportunities when they have to step up and not be too humble. The idea of Ace Lassus is a very curious one. Ace Lassus, Lashem Hefer, meaning that there's a time where you have to, so to speak, even go in fate, or even break what it says in the Torah. This is classically used when Rabbeinu HaKadosh wrote down, and the generation wrote down the mission, even though you're not allowed to write down Torah Shemalpeh, but they saw it was being forgotten. So they said, Ace Lassus, Lashem, Tefer, Tera Secha. Which means that it really is the way to preserve Torah. So he says, David Lesa is very curious when it says that you don't follow the ordinary rules, you don't even ask your Rav, you don't follow ordinary halacha, you just do what you feel is right. It happens often that we don't want to follow halacha, law, and sometimes we can even feel that we have a good reason for it, not to offend people, etc. How can we know if it is correct or if it is based on improper motives or is it just up to us to make that decision? Okay, an excellent question. We understand this is the concept of misplaced humility. But how do you know where to apply it? How do you know that you are allowed to do something, something to preserve because that's what God wants? It's a very good question. So that's true. We don't all have that license. So when you talk about a tzaddik, a person who's completely dedicated to God and he senses like Rabbi Noah, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and his colleagues, they realize that the time has come. I am sure it wasn't just one individual. It was consensus. So you're talking about a tzaddik in general, he has no agenda of his own, so he's much more trustworthy. But even a tzaddik is going to make sure it's correct because you want to be 100%, you're doing what God wants. Like, like um, Eliyahu Novi. So we say it was a Hayra Shah that he did something, bring a carbon outside the base of Mikdash. But it was in order to make a Kiddush Hashem. And therefore, it was Hayra Shah, means that for that moment it was right, but you can't learn from it. For most of us, or say all of us, the way to check on such a thing, whether what is humility, the appropriate humility, which is not, is to have an objective person to consult with. Arov, you said not to ask Arov. Look, emergency situation, there's no time to ask. It's like with Pinchas, with Zimri. It's one thing. But in many cases, you could consult. Get a consensus. Make sure that your subjective interests are not in the way before behaving in such a fashion. Because it's true. You can make a mistake and say, you know what? I don't misplace humility. Let me just go ahead. And if you do that, you follow the Torah's guidelines, Hashem will make sure that you and you do what is right. Okay. I just want to say, came. I heard once from Rabbi Ram Hecht. He was a Bokhin in 770, in the early years, in the 40s. Friedrich Rebbe once sent him to go speak in a shul, chassidus. And he said, it's not me. I, I, that's my brother, the ankle Hecht. I'm not a speaker. Friedrich Rebbe looked at him and said, Misplaced humility is rooted in arrogance.
just as an aside. So that's a central theme of that chapter. Okay, the next question let us do is, again, Boston was still doing Yudshvat, bringing Mashiach. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, for all the work, for all the work, for, for all your work for us. I greatly appreciate your podcast. I feel somewhat confused between these two feelings. Feeling the urgency to constantly actively work hard to bring Mashiach versus merely living in a chesidish way of in all your ways you should know God. Which will b'meila bring Mashiach, automatically bring Mashiach. Arayishtan the Aleph in Gela. Placing the Aleph, as I mentioned earlier, of godliness. Alufi Shalelam, master of the world. And Echad, Ahdus, godly unity. Are we supposed to be stressed and consumed with bringing Mashiach all day long? Or are we supposed to be living regular Chassidish lives? <coughs> are we running towards something or are we living something? In other words, does a hike or a game of Scrabble belong in my ultimate lifestyle? What if I like to play sports a lot or travel? Are those only outlets? Is it just to stay healthy and normal so I can work hard to bring Mashiach? Okay, let me elaborate. This, of course, is based on, if you heard my program last Sunday, a lot of this I spoke about. There's two sides to this. Let me begin with the Friedrich Rebbe's word, the Friedrich Rebbe Chazardal. On one hand, there was a sense of urgency, as you write, compelling sense of urgency, Mashiach coming at every moment. On the other hand, Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe told us to build Moistus, not just to rent, not temporary, build, buy property, build, invest, if Mashiach is coming every second, does that make sense? If literally tomorrow you're moving to Israel, why would you be building? Rent, temporary. So the Rebbe said, the Friedrich Rebbe once answered, because in Gedusha, everything you do, you're there completely. Like we see when the Jews traveled through the wilderness. Api Hashem, Yisu, Api Hashem Yachnu. Everything, when did they know when to move and when they know when to stop? Api Hashem. Command the Kfiel Ohudamis, says the Gemara in Erevim. Since it's Api Hashem, even if they rested for one day, or in some places for years, everything was Kavua. Doesn't matter how long it is. When you're there, since it's Api Hashem, God wants you to be there, you have to behave as if this is your permanent place, even if tomorrow you're moving. And the Rebbe once said, I remember, it seems like a contradiction. The answer is, no, Jews are accustomed to paradoxes. So this applies as well. The point is, that we're not just doing living chassidish lives, tater lives. That was always in history. There's an, a sense of urgency always, because we always have to anticipate Mashiach, but especially ones that ever told us that the time is now. Open your eyes. He gears mangolaschem, we're at the threshold. So there has to be both elements. Everything you do should be living a chassidish life. Everything you do, including sports and other things, you should look for the divine within it. But you also have a sense of urgency because that may be the tipping point that will tip the scales and bring the gula. So it's very different than just doing it in a regular routine way. It's also a certain urgency, certain push. And there's no contradiction. So it's not just enough, the chesidusha. What I discussed was about practical ways how we can infuse gula in our lives is by looking at our lives, whether it's Scrabble or sports or travel. I'm not talking about prohibited things, God forbid. And finding in it the divine element, in the cleaners, 
in medicine, in science, as I discussed last week. So that is a method. But one more point has to be added, that it should be done with a sense of urgency. When we teach our children, say, you know, this, we're looking for this divine, the Aleph, in Gaila. Not just because it's the right thing to do, and we Jews have been doing it from the beginning of time. But this may be the thing that actually push, tips the scale, and there's the eruption of the billions and billions of Alephs put into Gaila till now, the building blocks, and now we have the full structure emerging in a permanent way. So, I hope I answered both parts of your question. Next question. I don't understand the coming of Mashiach. Is it natural, gradual realization on our end of us merely opening our eyes? Or will the shofar suddenly sound and will be startled at its arrival? As the Rebbe said when he suddenly came out of his room, surprising those right there, those right there that were discussing the coming of Mashiach, how will it come? And the Rebbe said, just like this. And what do we get to say is a sign of the star of the Arab Mashiach? The Rebbe versus Rav Kook's outlook, which is that it's slowly, slowly. The answer is, yes, it's slowly, slowly, but it can, there's a process. What is powerful about the Jewish, and especially according to Chassidus, the view of Geul, it's not just an event. It's a process. It's an event at the end of a process. So I'm not sure what, it's both parts. It's been gradual for years and years. We're already almost 2,000 years since the destruction of the Second Temple. It's 5,780 years from the time, beginning of time creation. So it's about time. There's been a gradual process, step by step by step. As Chassidus explains, when Adam and Chava couldn't accomplish it in Gan Eden through transmigration and growth of population, they began to travel out to gather the sparks, not just like a great flame, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tehran in the beginning, that will draw the sparks. Now we have to go find the sparks. And as the generations went, more people, farther places. Till Well, let's go back a moment. Till Eretz Yisrael, they're building the base of Migdash and time of Shleimah Melech could also have been drawn all the sparks. Malka and so on. But then came the destruction and the dispersion. Golinu Maratzeinu. Stok Osa Kodesh Baruch Hu Misrol Umas. God did a charity. He separated them among the nations. He spread them out among the nations. What's the stalker? Says Chassidus, because they're going to gather the umis, the sparks that are spread everywhere. God only exiled them to increase in gaidim. What is gaidim? Not necessarily actual converts. Gaidim is the finding and redeeming of a spark, which is a ger that felt hostage in a strange place. Until came a stage, Jews went to Europe, other parts of the world, but still in the same hemisphere where the Matan Teda happened in a revealed way. And then came when Jews, Jewish people in the Friedrich Rebbe, especially in 1940, 80 years ago, moved to America. Why is that such a vital thing? Because we've now arrived at a lower hemisphere as the Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe writes in the letter to the Rebbe explaining Matan Teda is not begole here. So it's a darker state. But there's an advantage. Now we're going to find the sparks. As he explains in Shari Eira, you can gather the sparks, draw them with a big flame. But then it's you're drawing it. It's not necessarily elevating it on its terms. It's not internalized. Now it's internalized. And now as the Rebbe explains in Vayeshev Nun Beis, the classic Tovshin Nun Beis Vayeshev, and now there are Jewish people everywhere. That means now all the sparks are being gathered from the bottom up. And that means the most internal type of geula that completely 
is fused and transforms the world. It doesn't just impose itself, the divine energy on the world. It transforms it because it's coming like yesterday from within the existence. So that was a long process. Now comes the point where the process comes to an end. We've done so much. And then comes the event. The event is the eruption, the explosion, positively. The tipping of the scale. All that has happened. All the divine that has been brought, that was, that, that was infused in existence through all the years, now comes to a point of fruition that it erupts to the Gula, Amitis Vashlem, the Gula. So it's an event. So when you ask yourself, is it a natural, gradual result? Yes, it was. Then comes a point where there's an event. And yes, there's the, calling, the, the, the blasting of the shofar. Now we have to open our eyes to see how the universe is so expressing the divine, whether it's in technology or in politics or in human rights or in Jewish freedom. And the list goes on. The fall of the Soviet Union, as the Rebbe says, and all the other details. So then it's Behesach, then it's like Pisim. Why is it? Why, so why then is it like a surprise? It's a surprise because at the end of the day, we're still Golas people. And for us, Mashiach comes in a second, even though it makes sense, but it's a new reality that we're not accustomed to. So the event will be a surprise, but it's really not a surprise if you think about it. Because it makes sense that all the accumulation of good deeds and mitzvahs and mitzvahs nefesh accumulates to the point that it will bring the Gu'ulah. So the Rebbe is saying, now's the time. Has the Rebbe ever mentioned that there are people who have a packed suitcase in their house, so when Mashiach comes, they're ready to go? Does this mean Mashiach won't give people a few minutes to pack a bag? No, it's the exact opposite, as I said. The Rebbe did not say, pack your bags. There was a custom, there were people who had their walking stick and a set of clothes. If Mashiach comes to immediately go, in their bedroom, to maybe be ready. But the Rebbe went further. Build. We're building Mashiach in your location. What does that mean? Revealing the divine where you are. And that has to be done in a permanent and steady way. You don't do it in a haphazard way, halfway, because I'm, I'm, on my, I'm about to go on a flight. So you're bringing Geula Aleph into Gela, where you are. And it was not requested and required of us to make believe to just pack everything up. Of course we will have time. The time necessary, but will we need time? Will if you turn your location, your corner, into the Geula, you're ready. So there was never a directive that people should live with that type of sense of urgency where you're literally like about to leave the house. Live in a peaceful way, but be in your spirit, in your heart and soul. Know the urgency that any second it can erupt and the scale will be tipped. One more question regarding Yudfat. Shtuz de Gedusha is another central theme which we discussed last week in the themes for Basilagani. And again, go, just go back to godachsidasupply.com and you'll find the episode, last week's episode 294. You can also go to chsidasupply.com slash project70 and there's a direct link there to last week's program. Worth listening to. A lot of this is following up. Hi, Rabbi. What does Shtus Dikdush actually look like? Shtus Dikdush literally means holy madness or holy insanity or as I discussed last week, holy obsession. Is it going wild, like some might say, going around with yellow signs and flags and going crazy about Mashiach or something else? Even though perhaps the Yechi guys, Mashiachis, seem to be the ones doing the Shtus job, if that's how it should look? Okay. Well, the answer is very straightforward. Now, I, I, everything has to be according to a Torah Dikaway. Just because somebody behaves non, uh, foolishly 
or wildly does not mean it's Shtus Degdusha. It could just be Shtus period, just nonsense, just a misguided passion. Shtus Degdusha means Kedusha, which means you're not going just with a rational, deliberate, planned, strategic way. It says like, you plan, doesn't work out this way, you go above. No, says that you go initially above. It means you go with a certain determined passion, relentless. That is shtus. Why? Because usually people plan; they go in an orderly fashion. No, you're going with a what I call last week obsession. But instead of it being an obsession in the negative, in in bad things, addictions, obsessions, it's an obsession in a holy matter. It's obsession with the Rebbe's mission. That doesn't mean every obsession is acceptable. That's why we have a Torah. Like we spoke before, Ace Lassus, you can't just do whatever you like just because, just because it's Shtus doesn't mean it's Kedusha. Just because it's wild doesn't mean radical, means it's right. That's why the Rebbe said in the Chavches Nisan, Kalim, it is the Teyu, be Kalim, the Tikkun, radical energies, but in presentable containers. Because firstly, it has to be internalized. Secondly, we have to deal with other people who may not relate to this radicalism. So it has to be radical because you're coming from a very passionate place. Not, oh, there's always tomorrow and the next day. Let's plan. We'll wait another year. We'll have another meeting. A complacency. No, a sense of urgency. That's Shtuz the Gdusha. Like the, like the, like the Maimer brings the story with the Chasana, that they danced in this type of unbridled passion, unbridled simcha, not with making, the, with the Hadassim, doing uh, like juggling, these are behavior that is not what usually a Talmud Chochem is sitting by a Gemara, by a table, people coming to consult. But by a Simchas Chasana, a Sameachas Akala, you suddenly see a Shtuz Degdush going outside of his Kalim, dancing like we dance on Simchas Teira. That's the point. And I refer you to episodes 51, 53, and 54, and 294 last week, where I discussed this further. A few more questions on this, and then I think we will have to stop because time is running, time is running. Okay. <clears throat> the year, what is the story behind the Rebbe assuming leadership on Yutzfat 5711? What transpired during that year between the Friedrich Rebbe's passing and the Rebbe's official leadership? Can you discuss some of the things that happened during that year when the Friedrich Rebbe passed away until the Rebbe officially took over the leadership? Was there breakaway groups? Was there a contingent of people supporting the Rashak to take over? The Rashak was the, Friedrich, the Rebbe's older brother-in-law, Friedrich Rebbe's oldest son-in-law. Was it obvious to the community right away that the Rebbe was going to take over, even though he said he didn't want to? After it became official, the Rashak completely accepted the Rebbe. But why did the Rashak's wife have a grudge against the Rebbe? And in that, another question, was there a dispute where the Friedrich Rebbe's, Rebbe's wife refused to give the Rebbe his stimul? Did this mean she didn't support the Rebbe taking over leadership? So these are painful questions. I don't know all the answers, and maybe we don't even need to know all the answers. It's not our business to krichem vumidafnish. But I will say the following, because I heard it from some people. We're all curious. Essentially, there were those immediately understood that the Rebbe is the man. Even though he was discreet and private and people didn't really know him, but they saw he had that stature, he had that presence. You have a very famous, or lately famous, letter from Rabbi Yolis, Ephraim Yolis from Philadelphia, where he writes right after the stalkers of the Friedrich Rebbe, that the son-in-law, the Ramash, meaning the Rebbe, who would be the Rebbe, he was a few years ago by the Friedrich Rebbe, and he said, this is, I've, I know what a Rebbe is, this is Rebbe material. 
So with those that recognize it. Some may have not recognized it. More or less the Bochim and the El Siddim recognized it. Now there were people probably loyal in a sense to Rashak, to his family. And you have to remember, they were uncomfortable because they were, she was the older sister. Rashak was the older son-in-law. And perhaps they may have looked at it more like, you know, this is more like an administrative position. I don't want to get it now and criticize, I don't believe in that. So there may have been issues like that, and that's why you hear that there was some friction, there was, we have letters we see. And the Rebbe Tzana Chamedina perhaps felt that way. They wanted to have their continuation, their comfort. The Rebbe perhaps was obviously much bigger picture. It was not just socializing. It wasn't just the king's court. He was going to change the world. Like many chassidim, even chassidim b'chlal, when the Rebbe is talkus of the Rebbe Rashab, it wasn't easy for everyone to just go over to the Fidik Rebbe. Not because of, because you're used to your Rebbe. And I'm sure that after the Alter Rebbe and after the Mitle Rebbe, this is how it is. But then you come to see, as the Rashab came to see. Now, this time I've heard the story a number of times, I don't, can't verify it. That's what they say. They say also about the library, which is the library was never resolved. The chassidim felt that the Rebbe, the new Rebbe, has to have the is in control of the library. Hey, Tavis, of course, which would be many years later, 37 years later, in Tavshim Mem Zayin, or Mem Hey, 35, 37 years with the court case, in a sense vindicated and finally became the library of a good the Chabad, that it lives on. So that's part of the story. But that's, that's about what, enough to say. There's nothing more to elaborate. We know what the story is. The Rebbe became Rebbe. And look what the Rebbe accomplished. And now we're 70 years later, and we have to bring the Gul. That's the bottom line. Okay. So with that, let's go over to the Chassidus question, and then we'll do some. Es- they'll do the essays, and we will continue as- the- the- addressing other questions in the future episodes. The Chassidus question goes like this: Since it was yesterday was Pasha B'Shalach Man, what is Man according to Chassidus? What exactly is the Man? Lechem in how come it wasn't allowed to be kept overnight? I mean, every day you had to eat what, that which you gathered, and that was it, then it would melt away. Because it had a short expiration date and would turn into worms by morning. But on Shabbos, suddenly the man became with pre- pre- preservatives so it could remain overnight. Because on Friday, that's why we have Lechem Mishnah, on Friday they would gather for two days, for Friday and Shabbos. And I'll add a bunch of other questions that Chassidus talks about. Contradictions. If God is already making a miracle, Lechem and Hashemayim, why can't he just do it like an IV? They just sustain themselves. Why do they need the cloud to go out and gather anything? Or he could have given them bread from earth. You're making a miracle. Bread from earth could also fall. Bread should fall from the sky. What is this man, this strange object that they actually call, that's why it was called man, maza, mahu, ma, what is this? On one hand, it was definitely a substance. On the other hand, as you just point out, you couldn't save it like you save regular food. You could preserve it. On one hand, they ate it. On the other hand, it became lechem abirim. It was absorbed directly. But there was no digestion necessary. No waste. And all kinds of seemingly contradictions. Is it a food or is it not a food? It's some like a food that's not a, not a regular type of food. And then, the, then, then interestingly, the Zayar says that on Shabbos it was produced in heaven. But it didn't fall on Shabbos. It felt a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and on Friday, you ate Shabbos from Fridays, not from Shabbos. So what's going on here? So there's a very classic series of Maimonim from the Rebbe Rashab, based on earlier Chassidus. It begins, Pinchas Tofresh Ayin Hei, and it goes all the way to Ekev, Ayichalcha, Ayirvecha, Tofresh Ayin Hei. It's in, um, 
volume 2 of Ayim Beis, page 1061, Aleph, Tov Tov Kuf Samach Aleph, or Aleph Samach Aleph. Yeah, from page 1061 and on, discusses this at length. Api Kabbalah, Api Chsidis, briefly. The man was a way of helping them fulfill the purpose of their existence. The Jews had come out of Egypt. Right away they ate Lechem in the They didn't read Lechem in Hashemayim because they were not ready yet for such a divine experience. So they ate the bread, they ate matzah. Sa'edim, like he explains in Ayim Beis there. Michael Behema, barley. Counting of the Omer. That began to acclimate them to divine understanding that was concealed for all the years that they were in a toxic environment of Mitzrayim, Golas Mitzrayim, the worst of all Golas. Then came Lechman HaShamayim. Lechman HaShamayim is, as, as its name implies, it's a gili milmaila. Because God doesn't just want us to have a minimal divine experience, He wants us to have a complete divine experience. So, so the man is associated with the levels of Pneumius Atik. Tala Debdulcha. It's called the dew, the crystal dew. Not like Geshem. Rain comes through effort, others through our Mamatalamaila. Tal, the dew. And remember, the man fell on the dew, is a level that comes from Atik. And he explains there how the three meals of Shabbos, the first two meals, are, the first meal is associated with the works in the six days of the week, the Birurim. The second meal is also associated with it, but now you're already getting into the core pleasure. And the third meal is associates most with man, loyachlu. That's, that's why we don't wash to that meal and so on. So man is a level of gvuras the Atik, as he calls it. It's Atik, it's pure, undiluted, divine pleasure, but it comes down in some little package, because if it would completely be divine, then it would not be ours. God wanted it to be internalized, but there's no digestion, there's no need for eliminating waste, because there is no waste, it's pure divine energy. But divine energy in a way that we eat it, and we taste all the different tastes in it, and the other aspects. So that explains the, the paradox, because it's about the interface, the whole theme of Ayan Bez is interface, between the vine and existence. And the man captures that interface. So we ate it for almost 40 years to give us the strength to go then into the world. When we go back to Lechem and Aras, and we have now a taste of an experience that's more than just bread of the earth, which is Birudim. There you have to prepare it, and there's a lot of work and effort in plowing fields and, and, uh, and planting and sowing and gathering and then turning it into bread which is a whole bunch of processes. All the malochas, the malochas uh, that are not allowed on Shabbos, there's a whole series of them connected to, to agricultural law, to agricultural work. That's birur, we mevarab sailors from the echel. You're separating the wheat from the shaf, shaf, the dross from the shaf, and so on. Shabbos and man is, is higher than birurim. Either it's birur echel metechechel, as he explains that, food from food, Nutrients from nutrients, we're not dealing with waste, or to a point is altogether beyond bitter, beyond separating. It's pure, undiluted, divine attic as it's internalized in the human being to give strength for all the bitterum that would come afterwards until the gula, where we have the gili of attic, primis attic, the gili of man. And if you look at Ayin Beis, you'll see more details there. Okay, let us now move over to the essays. So we're doing essays from 2019 still. 
because the contest is running, 2019. Essay number one is an English addiction, the road to recovery, Dove Eisenman, age 30, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Addiction has become very prevalent in our generation. And at its biggest fear is of relapse, or that, we are, or that he will be unable to move on from his current situation. Perhaps his very fear is what leads to dig deeper into the problem rather than help crawl out. And ultimately, an addict is someone that has no power over his action. He has lost his dignity to be able to choose. He lost the capacity of a human being to have a power of choice. Very sad, yes goes on to explain the different ways people intervene when it comes to addiction. He says, we will go and cover the Hasidic approach, shifted from, instead of shifting from the end, it will shift from the end result to the process that allows for the desired result to arrive. And based on a Maimon King, talking about the two orders, the natural and miraculous order, and even in nature we see this, the, the God's power, and second part of this is from the Maimur Venochal of Tavshin Chafei. And based on these Maimurim, this essay goes ahead and develops an entire methodology of how we deal with addiction, even the darkest types, by recognizing the godly light and being able to elicit it. Very interesting essay. And well recommended. And this essay has now been posted as the new essays are posted at chassidahsupplied.com in the essay section. Essay number two is a Hebrew essay. Moyer Bilti Menutzach, meaning the invincible mind. Moti Stambler, age 22, Kvar Chabad, Israel. A student, Shliach, in Sifta Menachem in Westchester. In Westchester. Okay. She begins right away saying, imagine, have you ever seen some... some oh, it's all about awareness. Healthy awareness is the key to healthy solutions. He says, he begins, you ever see someone who has, God forbid, a wound in there, and instead of dealing with it, they just cover it up and seal it up without addressing it. There's no way that that's, that's going to solve the problem because it'll come back to haunt them. And he goes on to say psychologically, that's also what many of us do. So the key... How we deal with problems is, is to look at our, our perspectives of how we see things and our preconceived false and distorted notions that don't allow us to recognize healthy approaches. And goes on to explain at length how one does that. Very nice essay, well, well annotated. So thank you for that. And finally, now third essay for today is in Hebrew as well, Tasmin Hador Hasheni Etzliv Etzlacha. The symptoms of the second generation, he means after World War II, by me and by you. Elazar Cohen, age 22, Argentina, student, Tomim Shleich, Mesifta, Argentina. He's a Shleich in the Mesifta, student in the Mesifta in Argentina. Okay. Goes through the paradoxes of our time, the freedoms we have, the comforts that our parents and grandparents didn't have, and all the challenges that presents, personally and psychologically, and then addresses it, what can we do about the challenges of the comforts, the complacency, and other key challenges of our time. Nice essay, very nice essay, thank you for that. And with that we conclude. My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 290.
295. Yes, we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Please write your comments, your questions, your thoughts. Any feedback is welcome at chsidasupply.com. We have a forum completely anonymously. As we go into Chetu B'Shvat, and then next week will be Chav B'Shvat, week of Pasha Yisrei, and coming from Yud Shvat, Shivim Shana, may we live up to the way the Rebbe writes in the letter, to fulfill the part of the Shlichus that the Rebbe wanted to accomplish in this world. Part of it we should be able to be merit to fulfill. And this 70th year, the new Chayas, a new passion, and finally take, do it with that sense of urgency to push it over the finish line, the Gula Hamitiz Vashleinu. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapplied.com slash donate.